Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. But if you would, please take out the Word of God and turn in it in the Old Testament to the book of 1 Kings and chapter number 17, 1 Kings 17. And while you're turning there, I want to share with you an important passage that I think relates to what we're going to be looking at today. It comes from the book of James in chapter number 1 and verses 2 to 4. And James writes there to the believing community, and he says this, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, when you're talking about trials and difficulty, There's some interesting words that jump out at us here. One is the word joy. How do you have joy when you're encountering trials? And then we're encountering trials, plural, the the headaches, the heartaches, the hardships, the hassles that come to us in life. But he says that we can have joy knowing something, and that is that the testing of our faith produces endurance. Endurance is the idea of holding up under the weight of circumstances. It's staying power. It's spiritual tenacity. And he says we're to allow this endurance to have its result, and the result is in our life we end up being mature and complete. Now, if I were going to summarize what he says in those verses, I would summarize it this way. The ability to endure trials is developed by enduring trials. That's how we gain spiritual tenacity. You see, men and women, God loves us so much, he won't allow us to remain spiritually static. And God uses uncertainties in life to deepen our faith. And God employs changes and challenges and difficulties to develop us spiritually. And one example of that we have before us is Elijah. We're involved in a series of messages, there are going to be seven of them, entitled Ordinary to Extraordinary, and the title I've given to today's message is Deepening Faith. And I'm going to read an extended part of 1 Kings 17, beginning with verse 7. I'm going to read down through the end of the chapter, so I invite you to follow along as I read. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks, and I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first, 
and bring it out to me, and afterward you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord which he spoke through Elijah. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick, and his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? You've come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death? And he said to her, give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. And he called to the Lord. And he said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I'm staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. And Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper room into the house, and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Now the outline we have for these verses we're going to take a look at breaks into three parts. First of all, we have the call to development in verses 7 to 9. This is spiritual development God wants him to have. Then we have dire circumstances and God's provision in verses 10 to 16. And then thirdly, we're going to see mission impossible number three in verses 17 to 24. So let's begin by looking at the call to development. We learn in chapter 17 in verse 7 that the brook Cherith, this, this wadi, had dried up. Why had it dried up? Well, it tells us because there was no rain in the land. Why was there no rain in the land? Remember, he'd gone to King Ahab, and he said there's going to be neither rain nor dew all of these years. And so the water dries up in this place where he had made provision for Elijah. But notice the next verse says that then the word of the Lord came to him. He's basically saying, Elijah, it's time for your next step in spiritual development. You know, men and women, faith is developed in stages. And he'd, he'd learned a lesson there at the brook, but now it was time to move on. So he says, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. Now, we don't know the exact location of the brook Cherith, but we know approximately where it was. To go from there to uh, Zarephath was about a 100-mile trip. No freeways no bullet trains. You had to do it by foot at a time when there was scarce water in the land. He says, I want you to go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. You know, oftentimes in our country, we talk about the Bible Belt of America. Certain places are the Bible Belt. Well, this was the Baal Belt. This is where Jezebel was from. God is basically saying, I want you to go to Heathensburg, I want you to go to Baalsville. I want you to go to the very heart of the place where Baal worship 
flourishes. Now, I don't have to tell you that that, no doubt, if you just kind of, whenever you're in biographical literature, you have to sort of climb into the souls of people. No doubt this was totally nonsensical to Elijah. Are you kidding me? You know, I'm probably a wanted guy out there, and you're wanting me to go to Heathensburg, <laughs> to Balesville? I want you to go, he says, to Zarephath. Now, that word of the city, Zarephath, comes from a word that means smelting furnace. And it is in a smelting furnace that you would put metal in. It would be heated up, and it would be purified. See the imagery here? I'm sending you to the smelting furnace, Elijah. I'm going to turn up the heat. I'm going to do a little purification in your life. You need more faith development, is what God was saying to him. He says, when you get there, verse 9, there's going to be a widow who will provide for you. Now, now that wasn't real exciting because, you know, widows, much more than they are in our day, were at the total bottom of the barrel economically. Don't you think as he's walking that 100 miles, he might have been thinking, you know, God, I wish you'd sent me to a wealthy person. I wish you were sending me someplace where they had a storehouse filled with crops and fillets and fruit pies. You know, I'd much rather go there. But God doesn't send him there. I wonder why. Have you ever noticed in our life that when we're around some abundance, we have a tendency to rely on that abundance and that stuff and even on our own abilities? But boy, when you go to someone who's got nothing, we have to rely on God. Now, there's no doubt at all that God was making a point in sending him to Zarephath and a widow in Zarephath. You might jot down Luke chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, because there Jesus is teaching in a synagogue, and he reflects back on this event. And as he's teaching the people in the synagogue, he says, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three and a half years. Yet, Elijah was not sent to one of them, but he was sent to Zarephath. Now, the people in the synagogue understood the reaction showed. They understood what the point was. Because what happens is when he makes that statement, it says the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. They drove Jesus out of the synagogue up a hill with the intention of throwing him off a cliff. What was the point of sending him to a widow in Zarephath? Well, God was sending the message that I care about the lost. I care about the lost that are considered unwanted. I considered about the lost that are considered unreachable. I care about even those in Heathensburg. So you have this call to development. Secondly, we have dire circumstances and God's provision in verses 10 to 16. Look again at verses 10 and 11. He goes to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate, he sees a widow there who's gathering sticks. And he says to her, hey, get me some water that I may drink. And as she was going to get that, he called to her and said, please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. You know, if you've ever gone to a big city especially and people get off the airplane and they begin to get out of the secure area, you know, there's always a bunch of people standing there with these little placards, you know, with names on it. 
He knew he was supposed to go to a, a widow in Zarephath, but she wasn't going to be standing there with a placard, Elijah the Tishbite, just waiting for him to show up. He needed to confirm which widow was the one that God had identified. And so he asked her these questions to confirm all of that. And when he says, bring me a piece of bread, she replies in verse 12, as the Lord, Yahweh, your God lives. I don't have any bread. She recognizes Elijah as a follower of Yahweh. Why, we don't really know. Was it because he had an accent? Was it due to some direction from the Lord? We don't really know. But she says, hey, I don't have any bread. In fact, I'm out here gathering a few sticks, and here's my plan. I'm going to go back home. I'm making a stick casserole, and my son and I are going to eat it. It's our last meal, and then we're going to die. How many people have ever had a stick casserole? Let me see. No, we haven't had stick casseroles. But that's all she had. All she had. And so then we have his reply he said, listen, I have an assurance of the, problem, the promise of God. Don't fear. You just do as I have said. You make a little bread cake first. You bring it to me afterward. You can make one for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. He said, I have confidence in God's promise that he's going to sustain all three of us. And he's going to do it in a miraculous way. So what happens? Verse 15, she went out and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. For days and days and weeks, they lived off miracle biscuits. Every day, they kept making them. Every day, the ingredients were still there. See, God was developing Elijah's spiritual life and deepening his faith. At the brook, at the brook Cherith, where the ravens were coming, the lesson he learned there is God will take care of me. Now with the widow, there's another lesson he's learning, and that is that God can use me to care for others. And by the way, those are two lessons that we need to learn also. God will take care of me, and God will use me to care for others. It's, a, it's an amazing thing that we actually become the hands and the feet of God. Now, we're not, we're, we're not really sure exactly how long he was with this widow. I mean, the time frame is a little hard to follow. One thing we do know about time frame is that from the time he showed up to King Ahab and said there's going to be no more rain or dew till he shows up with Ahab again is a period of some three and a half years. We know that. How long was he at the brook Cherith with the ravens coming with the daily deliverance uh, two times a day? We don't really know. Maybe it was a year, maybe a year before the water of that wadi dried up. But if it was maybe a year, maybe it was two and a half years that Elijah was with this widow and her son. And no doubt during that time, he drew close and connected to them. I mean, after spending 
loneliness, maybe for a year at the Wadi with just these ravens showing up. You know, he actually had some relationship, and I think he drew close to them. And, and no doubt, again, you have to kind of climb into their thinking here. No doubt he's thinking, you know, this is nice. I'm, I'm not just hanging out with the ravens anymore. I'm here with this widow and her son, and we keep getting the miracle biscuits, and everything seems to be just smooth sailing right now. But the ability to endure trials is developed by enduring trials. It's how we gain spiritual tenacity. God loves us so much, he won't allow us to remain spiritually static. God uses uncertainties in life to deepen our faith. And God employs changes and challenges and difficulties to develop us spiritually. And that leads us to mission impossible number three in verses 17 to 24. You notice in verse 17 it says, now it came about after these things. What are the after these things? Well, I think they involved mission impossible number one. Mission impossible number one was you go stay by this brook and ravens are gonna cater to you two times a day. That's impossible. No, that was mission impossible number one. Mission impossible number two, I think, was the bottomless biscuits. You mean, we have a little bit of flour here and a little bit of oil, and we're just going to keep making biscuits every single day, and it's never going to empty? That's right. That's Mission Impossible number two. Now we're coming to Mission Impossible number three. Notice again, verse 17. After these things, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick, and his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. How do you think she felt? You know what I think she was thinking? First, it's my husband. <laughs> you take my husband away with me, and I'm basically begging on the street, and now it's my only child? I think that was her emotional reaction. And there's some remarkably real and practical stuff in these verses here. Very real First of all, it's important for us to understand a little bit of the backdrop of all of this with, with the god Baal. If you knew anything and you study about the god Baal, you would know that the god Baal was known for being capricious and unpredictable, kind of like storms. He was just a capricious and unpredictable god. You would never do, know what he was going to do next. And I think in part of her thinking... She's beginning to wonder, you know, I thought Yahweh was maybe different from Baal, but it's beginning to look to me like Yahweh is also capricious and unpredictable. Look at verse 18. By the way, this is a very common thing when a sudden tragic event happens in someone's life. She says to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, oh man of God? You've come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death? You know, if you've ever been around anybody that goes through this sudden tragic event, there's often this very emotional response that people have. I've seen it when people have been in the hospital and sometimes their loved one has died and they just emotionally strike out there's this anger that comes out at the shock and the hurt of the event. And sometimes the anger is really 
not just at death, but it gets displaced to people. And so you'll find them yelling at the doctors. Why didn't the doctors and the nurse, you know, and this displaced anger comes out. You know, part of it is just they're, they're feeling this hurt and, and, and sometimes they even want to blame somebody. I, I want to, Elijah, what are you doing here, you so-called man of God? And if you come here because of my own sin failures, is that why this judgment's coming to me? Because I've screwed up and now this is what I get, a dead son? You know what I'm talking about? We have, as human beings, this tendency to have this emotional response. But what I'm fascinated by is what Elijah does not do. Because sometimes when people strike out like that, we want to just react ourselves and and be very defensive back. Or we want to start a long explanation. You know, madam, let me just explain to you. Let me open up the Bible for a while. Let me just tell you about a bunch of verses in the Bible right now. Let me give an explanation as to why I... He doesn't do any of that. He sees her agony. He sees the tears streaming down her face. He sees the limp, lifeless son in her arms. And he says to her in verse 19, give me your son. And he takes him, carries him up into the upper room where he was staying there. And he lays him down on his own bed. And then, verse 20, he calls out to the Lord. Now, now what I really like about this prayer of Elijah is that his first emotion in all of this is very transparent and honest. Now, he doesn't do this in front of the woman, but when he gets alone with the Lord, he really allows his own honesty to come out. Notice what happens there. He says, oh, Lord, my God, have you also brought calamity to this widow with whom I'm staying? I've been here for two plus years. I like these people. I love these people. And now you're causing your son to die. He, he actually feels free to express his emotion to God. He's basically saying, I don't know what's up. I don't know what you're doing. Why would you take her only child? I don't understand this, God. I don't get it at all. And, and, and I, I don't know where this comes from or where it emanates from, but sometimes in the Christian world, you know, the spiritual world out there, there's this idea that if you are spiritual, it's off limits to express your emotion to God. Like, we, we can't do that. And, and if sometimes you struggle with that, I just have a suggestion, and that would be take a little tour through the book of Psalms sometime. And you'll find there that the psalmist had this freedom when they're alone with the Lord to get honest with him and let their emotions out. You know, over the years, I've had people who are going through some very difficult situations and they really have, you can tell as you talk with them, there's just some, some in, in this emotion about what God is God doing. I don't understand. And, and more than one time, many times, I've actually told people, here's my suggestion. I would like you to consider doing this, to drive out towards Lake Thunderbird. I want you to find a quiet corner in some parking area, and I want you to sit there. And then I want you to just share your emotions with the Lord. Just go ahead and let him know what they are. You know, God is a big boy. He can handle it. And that's what we see Elijah doing. He's alone with the Lord and he just lets his emotions out. We need to remember, and Elijah was remembering, even as he goes through this process, 
that when there's tragic events like this, that God is still always at work? We should never forget that God is always at work. Ray Pritchard wrote this. He said, some people talk as if the tragedies of life are accidents in the universe, as if God turned his head away and something bad happened while God wasn't looking, as if God tried to stop it but couldn't. And he goes on to say, a God like that is no God at all. I cannot worship an impotent, puny, man-made God who abdicates the throne of the universe and leaves us alone in our despair. That is not the God of the Bible. See, even when these kind of events happen, God is always at work. Tony Evans has stated in a very simple fashion. He says this, everything in the universe is either caused by God or allowed by God, and there is no third category. It's true. Everything in the universe is either caused by God or allowed by God, and there is no third category. See, when we are in the smelting furnace and the heat is on, when we're in the midst of difficulty and tragedy and pain, what we really need to do is remember who God is. Psalms 46.1, the psalmist said this, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. There's trouble, and what does Elijah do? He runs to the Lord in prayer. How does he approach the Lord in prayer? I think there's some helpful principles here. We see that he prayed honestly there in verse 20. He really let the Lord know what his emotion was. He prayed earnestly. We see that in verses 20 and 21. In the New American Standard, two times it says, he called out to the Lord. The New Living Translation says, he cried out to the Lord. There was earnestness in his prayer. And then thirdly, he prayed specifically in verse 21, let his life return to him. That's a great way to run to the Lord in prayer, to pray honestly, pray earnestly, pray specifically. Now, what ends up occurring? Well, verse 22, the Lord heard the voice of Elijah. The life of the child returned to him. Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper room, gave him to the mother, said, your son is alive. And the woman says in verse 24, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Now, now what's really happening here? And just as importantly, what can we learn from it? Well, I want to make a couple of observations. First of all, this event of a boy coming back from death at this point in biblical history is totally unprecedented. It had never happened before. But what does that tell us about Elijah's prayer? There was boldness in this prayer. It wasn't like he said, you know, I've seen and heard about this happen. No, this, was, this had never happened before, and he boldly asked for it to happen. And also we would want to observe that this was a unique event in Elijah's ministry. This was not some sort of a new norm, as there are some people out there who might want to say, we should just expect this to happen. This never happened again in Elijah's ministry. This was a unique event. Second thing that's important to note is that this was really a polemic against Baal. It was a refutation of Baal. 
because Baal was to be the God who had control of life and death. And this is pointing out, no, 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 it's Yahweh who has the power of life over death and not Baal. Part of what I think is happening here is that Elijah understood that God had given a promise to sustain them. And he was just praying that promise back to God as we saw last week. It's important to remember that God has never promised to heal in all situations. It's just not there in the Bible. But he has promised to provide strength in every situation. You can jot down 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 and 9 where Paul is learning that message as God says to him, my grace is sufficient. At the brook, as his faith was deepening, he learned the lesson, God will take care of me. With the widow, he learned the lesson that God can use me to care for others. With the son, the lesson was, God can work through me to do impossible things. The ability to endure trials is developed by Enduring trials. It's how we gain spiritual tenacity. God loves us so much, he won't allow us to remain spiritually static. God uses uncertainties in life to deepen our faith. God employs changes and challenges and difficulties to develop us spiritually. When we're in the midst of the furnace, what should we do? Elijah says, run to the Lord in prayer. The psalmist says in Psalm 141.10, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You know, Gene Ketz relates the story of a pastor by the name of Kepha Sampanji. He was pastor of a 14,000-member church in Uganda back in 1973 when Idi Amin started his intense persecution there. Thousands of people were assassinated by Amin's assassins. And this is a little bit of a story of what happened to Pastor Kifa and his family, how they were spared from death. It was an Easter Sunday morning, and he had preached that day to thousands of people who'd come from miles around. And at the end of the day, as the sun was going down, he closed the final service, and and then it happened. And I'll just read you his description of it. He says, I greeted several more friends, then left for the vestry to change my clothes. I had to push my way through the crowd, and when I finally arrived, I was exhausted. I was too tired to notice the men behind me until they had closed the door. There were five of them. They stood between me and the door, pointing their rifles at my face. Their own faces were scarred with the distinctive tribal cuttings of the Kakwa tribe, and although I had never seen them before, I recognized them immediately. They were the secret police, Amin's assassins. For a long moment, no one said anything. Then the tallest man, obviously the leader, spoke. We're going to kill you, he said. If you have something to say, say it before you die. And he spoke it softly, but his face was twisted with hatred. I could only stare at him. For a sickening moment, I felt the full weight of his rage. We had never met before, but his deepest desire was to tear me to pieces. My mouth felt heavy, and my limbs began to shake. They will not need to kill me, I thought to myself. I'm just going to fall over. 
I'm going to fall over dead and I'll never see my family again. From far away, I heard a voice and I was astonished to realize that it was my own. I do not need to plead my own cause, I heard myself saying. I am a dead man already. My life is dead and hidden in Christ. It is your lives that are in danger. You are dead in your sins. I will pray to God that after you have killed me, he will spare you from eternal destruction. The tall one took a step towards me and then stopped. In an instant, his face was changed. His hatred had turned to curiosity. He lowered his gun and motioned to the others to do the same. They stared at him in amazement, but they took their guns from my face. Then the tall one spoke again. Will you pray for us now? He asked. I thought my ears were playing a trick. I looked at him and then at the others. My mind was completely paralyzed. The tall one then repeated his question a little more loudly. I could see that he was becoming impatient. Yes, I will pray for you, I answered. My voice sounded bolder even to myself. I will pray to the Father in heaven. Please bow your heads and close your eyes. The tall one motioned to the others again, and together the five of them lowered their heads. I bowed my own head, but I kept my eyes open. This request seemed like a strange trick. Father in heaven, I prayed, you who have forgiven men in the past, forgive these men also. Do not let them perish in their sins, but bring them to yourself. It was a simple prayer, prayed in deep fear, but God looked beyond my fears, and when I lifted up my head, the men standing in front of me were not the same men who had followed me into the vestry. Something had changed in their faces. It was the tall one who spoke. His voice was bold, but there was no contempt. You have helped us, and we will help you. We will speak to the rest of our company, and they will leave you alone. Do not fear for your life. It is in our hands, and you will be protected. I was too astonished to reply. The tall one motioned for the others to leave, and he himself stepped into the doorway and turned to speak one last time. I saw widows and orphans in the congregation. I saw them singing and giving praise. Why are they happy even when death is near? While it was difficult, I answered him and said, because they are loved by God, he has given them life and will give life to those they love because they died in him. He says, his question seemed strange to me, but he didn't stay to explain. He shook his head in perplexity and walked out the door. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for the life of Elijah. We thank you that we all are going to go through this process of deepening faith. May we remember to run to you when the heat gets strong in prayer and to remember that your love is greater, your love is stronger than anything we will ever face on this planet. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. 